Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. There are trillions of microbes on our skin, a lot of them beneficial, including bacteria, fungi, viruses. Even mites, even things that you can see with a magnifying glass <laughs> that are on our skin you said all mites? the time. Yeah, face mites. Ooh. We all have them. <laughs> I know, Fun. right? From the New England News Collaborative, this is Next. We'll talk about how excessive hygiene regimens could be hurting our skin. And later on the show, a town considers honoring a black revolutionary war hero who never got his dues. It kind of makes me feel better being able to point and say, yeah, my people have been here. We've contributed here. We're not the outsider. Plus, chances are, if you've gone swimming in the ocean, you've swam with sharks. And though attacks are incredibly, incredibly rare, it's still good to prepare. You're going into the wilderness when you go to the beach. You wouldn't go into the Amazon in a pair of flip-flops and a bikini or shorts. It's Next. Next is produced at Connecticut Public Radio and is powered by the New England News Collaborative, 10 public media companies coming together to tell the story of a changing region with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. I'm Morgan Springer. Thanks for joining us. Some colleges in New England are starting to welcome students back to campus. We begin the show by looking at how a few different schools are planning to deal with this influx of students in the middle of a pandemic. The University of Connecticut already has some students on campus, and administrators recently punished a group of students for partying. But as Connecticut Public Radio's Frankie Graziano reports, the punishment that was handed out may miss the mark and actually expose residents in the area to COVID-19. It began with a video that went viral just after students returned to campus. What had normally seemed pretty college is a rough watch in a pandemic. A young woman drinks from a red Solo cup, and the camera pans to a bunch of other young people packed into a small room. Nobody's got a mask on. UConn says its student code of conduct prohibits behavior that endangers others. People involved in the dorm party lost their right to university housing and were kicked off campus. Punishing the students for bad behavior, but then returning them to live among us, is what Yale Assistant Professor of Epidemiology Greg Gonsalves calls rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic. The point is is that if somebody was exposed, potentially, to SARS-CoV-2, they need to be isolated and tested, and after 14 days can go back to their dorm room or go back to uh, their off-campus housing. Throwing somebody off campus is booting the problem to your, your local community, basically. UConn has confirmed that it won't be isolating the students, and the Department of Public Health won't require them to. A DPH spokesperson tells Connecticut Public Radio the responsibility for that policy lies with the president of the Connecticut State Colleges and University Systems Board of Regents. That's Marco Jakian. He's weighed in on the party, commending UConn for its punishment of the students. Sends a message that this is serious. This is not just about your ability to have fun and party, but it's about your responsibility to keep folks safe. 
Connecticut Public Radio reached back out to the CSCU system to find out if the board would ever have a school like UConn reverse course and take responsibility for properly isolating students against COVID-19 mitigation efforts. A spokesperson says that's up to UConn. Gonsalves, the Yale epidemiologist, thinks the situation illustrates a lack of a solid plan from leadership at the school. He says the governor should step in and mandate that UConn take on a full remote learning model. We need to think clearly about whether we really have what it takes to keep our community safe or we're we're sort of doing a bit of wishful, magical thinking uh, because we're all desperate to get back to normal. That statement uncovers a larger point exposed by the partying students. Gonsalves says that institutions should probably test students two or three times a week to avoid an outbreak. But even if everything breaks right, according to Gonsalves, you still might not be able to keep COVID-19 away from local colleges and universities. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Frankie Graziano. Now we turn to the University of Vermont. Both school and government officials say they're confident UVM will be able to safely bring nearly 12,000 students back to campus while containing potential outbreaks of the coronavirus. In April, the university committed to bringing students back for in-person classes. And as Vermont Public Radio's Liam Elder Connors reports, UVM has not wavered from that position, despite the fact that hundreds of colleges around the country that made similar pledges backtracked as the pandemic got worse. Earlier this month, the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill abruptly reversed its plan to have on-campus classes. The switch came after more than 100 students tested positive for the coronavirus in the first week of classes. We're not UNC. The day after UNC's announcement, University of Vermont President Suresh Garamella held a press conference in an attempt to quell growing concerns about UVM's reopening plan. I think you will see more stories like the UNC story. Um, All of our planning was done so that we don't have the same repeat here. Garamella says one important difference is that Vermont has less COVID-19 activity than North Carolina and pretty much every other state. He says UVM also has one of the most robust testing plans in the nation. Students are required to get a COVID-19 test five days before coming to campus, again when they arrive, and then weekly tests until September 18th, at which point the university will reassess its strategy. Garamella says UVM is doing more than just testing a lot. Classrooms have been adjusted to allow for physical distancing, in-person instruction will end before Thanksgiving, and students will face sanctions for breaking public health rules. For example, hosting a party or refusing to wear a mask could bring a $250 fine for the first violation, and suspension from school if it's a second offense. We have no qualms about enforcing disciplinary action. UVM's strategy has the backing from the state's top health officer, Commissioner Mark Levine. During a recent press conference, Levine said that the detection of several positive cases among college students returning to Vermont, including some at UVM, indicates that reopening strategies are working. We actually want to find these cases as the campus begins to regroup so we know who needs to stay inside and away from other people so we can prevent the virus from spreading any further. Despite those reassurances, there's been a growing chorus of city residents, elected officials, and some UVM faculty and students who don't think the university's plan will keep the community safe. UVM English professor Nancy Welch says the reopening plans set up students to fail. College is designed for intense social interactions and socialization. 
And it is unfair to put students in that situation and then turn around and say, we're going to blame and sanction you if you break these rules. One particular area of concern comes from city residents who live in neighborhoods with high student populations. They're worried about college kids throwing large parties, something that's already happening, according to resident Maddie Posig, who spoke at a recent community meeting. This has been one of the worst summers I've ever experienced here in Burlington. There have been huge house parties, lots of drinking, no social distancing, no masks. Off-campus gatherings have already been the source of COVID outbreaks in other parts of the country. UVM has encouraged city residents to report parties to the university, but Posig says that's a lot to ask people. It's almost like tattle on the students, like it's up to us to control their behavior. And I I think that puts us in a very awkward position. To that end, UVM has agreed to fund, quote, education patrols by the Burlington police in those areas of the city. The officers will focus on outreach, but they'll also be able to write tickets. But even that proposal is controversial. Critics say given national and local efforts to overhaul policing, the city shouldn't be deputizing cops to enforce public health rules. Mayor Moreau Weinberger says the city and UVM decided police were the best option. We have um, officers who are uh, well-trained to and experienced at performing comparable duties. They have conducted these t- types of circuits um, for more than eight years. And the alternatives uh were, we, we couldn't find an alternative that was better. Whether or not UVM's plans will be enough to prevent COVID-19 outbreaks will be tested in the coming days and weeks. Brandon Falkowski is one of the thousands of students who came back. The third-year history and political science major says at first he was excited to return. But as coronavirus cases around the U.S. have spiked this summer, Falkowski says UVM should have reconsidered. Even if it's not happening in Vermont, it's still like, I'm concerned. And I really do think now that UVM probably shouldn't have reopened. Um, I'm going to class. I'm going to be on campus. That's just going to be what happens. Um, But I guess I'm more like I'm not going to be surprised when UVM announces they're going online in like three weeks. When UVM would decide to pull the plug on in-person classes is unclear. Garamella, UVM's president, has refused to offer specifics on what rates of infection on campus would trigger a reversal. Instead, when asked during a press conference, he expressed confidence in the college's strategies. We're spending so much more money and so much more planning has gone into this and a reliance on science. You know, as well as anyone, Liam, that there are areas in the country that are not following scientific advice. Garamella says UVM has, quote, mechanisms in place to make changes if the situation calls for it. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Liam Elder Connors. More four-year colleges are suddenly flipping to online instruction. So recent high school graduates admitted to universities are taking a second look at their local, more affordable community colleges. From Boston, WGBH Radio's Kirk Carapeza reports, some community colleges hope the trend will make up for enrollment declines. Last spring, 18-year-old Sarah Maria of Ludlow, Massachusetts, was accepted to Syracuse University, her dream school. I want to go into marketing and business management and communications, and they're really good in that realm. Sarah is the daughter of a school custodian, and she didn't get the financial aid her family needed, so she began to waver and to take a second look at her local community college, Springfield Tech. I didn't want to be in debt for a long time because with marketing, 
it depends on what business you go into with salary, so it's not steady. Then COVID and the economic collapse hit, and nothing seemed steady. Her family lost income, and Syracuse moved its spring classes online, and then announced it would welcome some students back this fall. I didn't want to be on campus with a ton of other different people, and I wanted to keep me and my family safe. She chose Springfield Tech, and to get a head start, even enrolled in three online summer courses. I finished macroeconomics, a world religions class, and a business calculus class. Sarah is not alone in doing this college cost and health calculus. A survey out this month finds four in ten incoming freshmen at four-year colleges are likely or highly likely not to attend, in part because they don't trust their peers to follow health safety guidelines, and their families don't want to pay full tuition if most classes will be online. Even before the pandemic, a WGBH news survey found a majority of Americans would recommend community college over taking out loans for a four-year college. Community college leaders are hoping this public sentiment will offset a steep drop in adult learners who are stepping away because they've lost their job, income, childcare, or all of the above. Researchers, though, say the enrollment math equation is not so simple because the situation is so fluid right now. We're not actually going to know what the real picture is until students actually show up on day one of classes. Michael Horn is co-founder of the Clayton Christensen Institute and author of the book Choosing College, How to Make Better Learning Decisions Throughout Your Life. A lot of families have been saying over the summer that they can't afford uh, their first choice school or that they're concerned about traveling far distances. Families are thinking, hey, community college may be a better bet for the first semester, for the first year. The idea is to earn at least some college credits and then transfer them to a four-year school if it will accept them. Oftentimes, schools actually will not accept all those credits or they'll put weird hoops around them where they say, oh yeah, it counts for credit, but not toward your major. And so therefore, it actually doesn't help you graduate on time. That's why students are wary of committing to a community college if it means they'll be in school longer. A WGBH news survey of community colleges in New England finds many are fielding questions from students who are reconsidering their fall plans, but most expect to see a significant enrollment drop by at least 10% compared to last year. Everyone is saying enrollment is down. Davis Jenkins studies community colleges at Columbia University, and he says before the pandemic, Community colleges in Massachusetts were losing students to public and private four-year colleges. In the urban areas of Massachusetts, increasingly you need a bachelor's degree even to enter fields and often to advance. During the pandemic, Jenkins says newfound interest in community colleges among recent high school graduates won't offset enrollment declines, even with so many adults unemployed and in need of retraining. The increased competition will mean certainly the private, non-selective four-years are going to be discounting their tuitions because many of them are fighting for their lives. Back in Ludlow, 18-year-old Sarah Maria is doing some back-of-the-envelope math. If she spends two years at Springfield Tech and doesn't have to pay room and board, and then transfers to UMass Amherst and gets a tuition break from the state, do you know how much money you're saving? Probably, like, over $200,000. So, basically a house. (laughs) For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Kirk Carapeza. Last week, we asked you, our listeners, when someone says something you think is racist, ignorant, or insensitive, are you more inclined to speak up, or do you think it's not your place? 
Shanti Dahabi, a listener from Manchester, New Hampshire, called with this comment. I absolutely think we all have a responsibility to speak up. I understand people saying that it's not our place. We were all brought up to be polite. But it's everyone's job to put a cap on racism and then to fully reverse it, fully dissolve it into understanding. And it's going to take a lot of healing. And it means everybody speaking up. We heard from other listeners, including Tommy Morphew, who says, for him, it really depends on how egregious the statement is. He says, quote, there are situations where I would absolutely correct someone, but most of the time, it's really not my place, unquote. This week, in preparation for a series of specials we're doing in September on racism in New England, we'd like to know, what have you learned about the history of racism in our region, whether it was from school, from family, or life experience? Leave a comment at 860-275-7595. Again, 860-275-7595. You can also leave us an email at next at ctpublic.org. One more time, that's next at ctpublic.org. And thank you. Coming up, a town in New Hampshire hopes to commission a statue honoring a little-known but influential Black Revolutionary War hero. Plus, are we showering too much? And is it bad for our skin? It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Common Sense Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate change and the evolving clean energy economy. Support also comes from Douglas Stone and Mary Schwab Stone through the Smart Family Foundation of New York. Welcome back. I'm Morgan Springer. On Next, we've reported about the controversy over removing statues of historical figures. But today we have a story from New Hampshire Public Radio's Sean Hurley about a town in his state that's considering putting one up. Healthcare reporter Brian Ward is black and 28 and lives in Newmarket. He says he's never seen a statue honoring a person of color his entire life, but then takes it back. I do remember one black statue. It was Louis Armstrong at the Louis Armstrong uh, Airport in New Orleans. I think that was the first and only black statue I've ever seen. Ward knows there are others. Martin Luther King Jr. in Washington, D.C., Jackie Robinson at Dodger Stadium in Los Angeles. But are there any statues featuring black Americans that aren't tied to race, music, or sports, he asks. It can't just be, oh, we have a great black American. Can we just treat anyone who did something good for America in the same light? And if we just look at the straight numbers... It's all white statues right now, and, you know, we could add a few more. If Newmarket counselor and restaurant owner John Kuyper, who is white, has his way, a statue honoring a great black American and former town resident, Wentworth Cheswell, will soon be commissioned. The first battle of the revolution was not in Concord. It was actually technically in Portsmouth, first sort of, like, engagement with the British troops at Newcastle. And that Wentworth Cheswell was the first person to round up people and in some ways instigated this first battle of the revolution. John Kuyper first learned of Cheswell from a friend, local English teacher John Herman. His race is definitely part of the story. He has the same racial background as Sally Hemings, who was the slave of Thomas Jefferson, but he was, he was free. His father was free. His grandfather was a slave who was freed 
1716. Herman first read about Cheswell on the historical marker at the Cheswell Cemetery a decade ago and has been pursuing him with difficulty ever since. There are no books about Cheswell, no authentic paintings or renderings, but Cheswell created the first library in town, wrote Newmarket's history, and is known as New Hampshire's first archaeologist. He was the moderator, the assessor. He was a town councilman. He was a school board member. He was the school teacher. He was the coroner. He served almost every single year of his life, right up into his death. He was a judge. Um, He was justice of the peace. When he was voted in as town constable in 1768, at the age of 22, Cheswell became the first African-American to hold elected office in the United States. Like Paul Revere, Cheswell was a member of the Committee of Safety and rode from secret meetings delivering messages through the woods on horseback, earning him the dubious nickname, the Black Paul Revere. People forget that what we know of Paul Revere comes from a poem that was written to get people involved in the Civil War years, years, years later. A fictionalized thing. Paul Revere was court-martialed and he was accused of being a coward. He had a horrible end (laughs) to the American Revolution. But one with Cheswell, I would put him on the horse. Put him warning people that the British are coming. Darianne Bogus would too. That should be the American story that we honor, you know, that we look and say, wow, that's the hero story. Bogus is executive director of the Black Heritage Trail in Portsmouth, where she focuses on bringing forgotten black history in New Hampshire to light. She helped get a statue of Harriet Wilson, the first black woman to publish a novel in North America, put up in Milford in 2006. And that was just a start. There are so many rich stories of African and African-American life here that we just don't know about. So many people in our state that we could honor and their names like Cheswell should be much more known for what they accomplished. His name should be everywhere, right? How then do we forget those names? The Harriet Wilson statue in Milford, Bogus says, is one way to make sure we remember. So, you know, having these monuments not only creates that visible memory of that person, but it also creates that story of a more welcoming community. Councillor John Kuyper says it was shortly after the recent Black Lives Matter movement began and statues started coming down that he had a thought. I think it's one of those things you don't think that much about, you know, until people start tearing them down and lighting them on fire and then you think, you know, what statues shouldn't we have, but what statues should we have? Kuiper contacted a monument company and was told that for around $35,000, he could have a full-size bronze statue of Cheswell made and delivered anywhere he liked in town. Raising that money won't be an issue, he says. You know, I feel like the biggest debate is going to be uh, over where, <laughs> you know. And there's a number of good spots around the library particularly that would be cool. Uh, the idea of building a monument to him is just, you know, there's never been a better time than now. I guess to do it. If all goes to plan, the Cheswell Monument would become the second statue honoring a black American that Newmarket resident Brian Ward lays his eyes on. You know, it kind of makes me feel better when I have an idea of having a statue of someone being able to point and say, yeah, my people have been here. We've contributed here. We're not the outsider. We're not the interloper. We're also part of America. We're part of New Hampshire. It's Brian Ward's hope and John Kuiper's plan that on the anniversary of Wentworth Cheswell's 275th birthday, in April of 2021, a new statue will be unveiled in Newmarket, honoring a man who helped shape his town, his state, and country. A man we should not only have never forgotten, but one we should have especially remembered. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Sean Hurley.
Our next guest hasn't taken a shower in five years. That's not his defining characteristic, but it's related to what we're going to be talking about. James Hamblin is a preventative medicine physician, lecturer at Yale University, staff writer at The Atlantic, and author of the new book, Clean, The New Science of Skin and the Beauty of Doing Less, which talks about the impact of our hygiene practices on our skin and overall health. Dr. Hamblin, welcome to Next. Thank you for having me. So do you really not shower? Uh, Yeah. Well, not in any traditional sense. I'll rinse off with just water sometimes. Um, And I I wash my hands, which is not part of showering, but I like to specify that I do that very uh, meticulously. Yeah. So the reason you stop showering is kind of at the heart of your research. So when did you stop and why? It was just over five years ago in a gradual process, which is what, if you're going to do this, do it gradually. And it was a confluence of things. I was learning about the science of skin microbes. I was seeing new startups uh, that were starting to sell people skin products that were meant to harbor and foster a healthy skin microbiome. And uh, I was also just in a phase of kind of minimalism myself and an interest in cutting back on things. I think um, we can often think about our skin as just kind of like this container that holds all the important things like organs and blood. But you're writing about how important the skin is for our health. What are some of the things that happen if our skin's microbiome is not balanced or healthy? Uh, That's a great question. We're really just starting to understand this science uh, because we didn't even know for a long time that we had a microbiome to this degree. We knew there were microbes on us and not all of them were causing harm, but we didn't know there were trillions. Just similarly to the gut microbiome, which has only made its way into consciousness popularly in like the last 10 years, um, the fact that we are more microbial cells than human cells in and on us means that these things are definitely playing a role in our health. And in part, they are helping us to digest food, to digest the oils that our skin secrete, and to modulate the immune system in our skin that creates flares of eczema, psoriasis, acne. But it's a really complex dance, and it's a complex ecosystem. Yeah, and so do we have a sense of, like, what are we really talking about when we're talking about microbes on our skin? Yeah, no, that's a big question. So you're talking about uh, bacteria, fungi, viruses, archaea, even mites, even things that you can see with a magnifying glass that are on our skin you said all mites? the time. Yeah, face mites. Ooh. We all have. <laughs> I know, right? Um. And if you saw an option to, you know, buy a, a medicine or a, or facial cream that would eliminate the mites, that would seem like a good thing to do, right? And yet, we, if you know that you know a hundred percent of us have mite DNA on our face then it's probably not something you want to get rid of, right? When something is a a feature of 100% of people, that's as close as we get to defining normal. But, well, so together there are trillions of microbes all over us that form this complex ecosystem, and most of them are not causing disease or infections. And when we see skin diseases, outbreaks, um, infections, it seems more to do with an overgrowth you know, an imbalance. And so when we're using like all these different soaps and shampoos and loofahs and lotions and oils and conditioners and just like washing obsessively, do we know yet 
conclusively how that Im- impacts the microbiome or yeah, what can you say about that? Yeah, we know that at the very least what you're doing is changing the soil on which these microbes grow. So you change the pH of your skin, you remove the oils on which microbes feed. Um, and that's part of the reason that you don't smell as much because you're removing those microbes that, that produce odor. Um, but for example, in your armpit, you know, when you apply an antimicrobial deodorant or when you simply wash everything away with soap, you know that within 24 hours it will be repopulated by some bacteria that smell bad. I mean, like onions and what we call body odor, <laughs> like really, really bad. Um, and you know, that is not evolutionarily advantageous to be really repulsive to other members of of the species. So the idea is that if you have a kind of a healthy population there all the time, that you are, as I am, that you, you have a smell to you, but it's not repulsive to other people. It's not pungent. That doesn't, you can't smell it from uh, far away and that it's a normal part of how we interact and communicate. Correct me if I'm getting any of the facts on this wrong, but my understanding is that you talked to a doctor in Canada who had all these men coming to her with dry skin, and basically she came up with a regimen for them. What was that? Yeah, it's sort of a cleanse from cleansing. People tend to want you know, a product or a prescription or a procedure when something is wrong uh, with the skin or, or with other parts of the, of the body. And tend to be dissatisfied with the answer of like, well, just just do nothing or do less. So she created this sort of idea of a product cleanse. So she has people kind of go without a lot of the aggressive body wash scrubbing that apparently, especially men, are prone to. And a lot of times people are having eczema and dry skin. Things get better. In the book, you you look at basically how we got to this point where we're lathering ourselves head to toe um, and the evolution of our hygiene. When did you really see a shift in how we cleaned? There was a period in the late 19th century known as the soap boom, kind of after the Industrial Revolution, people started moving into cities. And so this confluence of things where people could afford soap that was mass-produced, they could be able to clean themselves, and they felt a need to. And so for a while, that was an advance in, in preventing the spread of, you know, infectious diseases like cholera. But it quickly got overtaken as a marker of class and status and wealth as we did the same thing we often do in medicine and started to presume that if a little was good, more was better and that we should be washing elaborately every day and that more expensive, better smelling soaps were somehow better and we've continued to escalate that to this day. I feel like in this uh, time of obsessive cleaning because of COVID-19, we should at least talk about the importance of hand washing, that that doesn't go away. Um, can you say a little bit about that? Yeah. No, that, that that is really the key to it. You know, if you talk about uh, hand sanitizer and you suggest that people should be putting hand sanitizer all over their whole body every day, um, we find that ridiculous. Uh, even though hand sanitizer is very effective on your hands. And I think the similar a similar point can be made about soap. That is not a public health directive. The public health directive is to use soap in ways that will prevent spread of in- contagious diseases. And so that means the hands. And 
it doesn't mean that more is better or that you need to do elaborately more than that. The rest of it is a social and personal preference. Before I let you go, I just want to, I guess, give you kind of an open-ended question, which is like of all the people you talked to and all the research you did in the book, is there a thing that surprised you most or that has really stuck with you most? It was. It's really the overarching idea of how little is based in evidence or that uh, of what we do, how much of it really has anything to do with health. You know, there were things I just hadn't questioned before, like using deodorant, um, like washing my hair, thinking, you know, these are products that are sold in pharmacies that everyone does, and they must be good for us for some vague reason I hadn't really considered, but that that all is easily traceable to marketing and that if you love using those products, then great. But that if you don't, there are also huge numbers of people who have weaned themselves off and are perfectly happy and inoffensive and are able to save time and and money and, and plastic bottles. I was never spending you know, hundreds of dollars a month on on these products to begin with. But for others who are, or for people who are dealing with, you know, really annoying skin conditions and have seen improvements, I think for them, the the idea of being liberated from the the cycles of product use is is really life-changing. That was James Hamblin, a doctor, journalist, lecturer at Yale University, and author of the new book, Clean, the new science of skin, and the beauty of doing less. Now, here's a renewable energy project that we're keeping an eye on. The University of Maine has been working to pioneer floating offshore wind technology. That project took a $100 million leap forward this month with the announcement that two industry heavyweights are going to invest in its development. The project would be located near Monhegan Island, Maine Public Radio's Fred Bever reports. A subsidiary of the Mitsubishi company called Diamond Offshore Wind is joining with RWE Renewables to invest the $100 million to build and deploy a full-scale floating wind farm at the site. It's about 14 miles off Maine's coast. The new company, called New England Aquaventus, will collaborate with the University of Maine Composites program that was the incubator for the project's unique floating platform technology. Chris Wisman, a longtime executive in the offshore wind industry, will lead the new company. It's a big endeavor. It will take a couple of years, really, to get this off the ground right, right? Prove that we can build, build it with Mainers. We can do this safely, and we can deploy it really as a laboratory for everybody to learn from. The investment signals the full rehabilitation of an effort that had withered during the governorship of Republican Paul LePage, a fierce opponent of renewable energy projects he characterized as over-dependent on consumer subsidies. Two years ago, his appointees to the State Public Utilities Commission put a hold on a power contract vital to taking the Aquaventus technology beyond the scale model prototype that floats off Monhegan now. But last year, the legislature passed a law signed by the new governor, Democrat Janet Mills, directing the commission to award an above-market power contract to the project. That set the foundation for this project to take off. So we come in as developer. We are essentially restarting development, selecting the final turbines. We're working on all the engineering details. And so the collaboration with the university is to finish 
got development, all of that engineering, and now get it ready for construction. The full-scale project will feature a giant turbine on a floating concrete hull. Main-based Chinbro will construct the modular platform segments in Brewer and barge them down the Penobscot River to Searsport, where they will be conjoined with a turbine and tower and then taken out to sea. The design was innovated at the University of Maine's Advanced Structures and Composites program, and it aims to allow economically competitive wind energy development in waters deeper than is practical for traditional fixed-platform systems. Backers say it will be the first full-scale floating wind platform in North America, giving Maine a prominent role in a potentially lucrative technology of the future. It's a big technology play from our perspective, and the university has now 43 patents. Dr. Habib Dagger leads the university program. The technology was also designed specifically so it can be built locally to create local jobs. That's really a big distinction between this technology and many others. We don't have to import the, the hulls from anywhere else. We can, we're going to make them right here in Maine. The project is expected to create 350 jobs during construction and could be completed by 2023. It has yet to receive any permits, though, and is likely to run into some opposition from fishermen and others worried about offshore wind projects' potential effects on marine life. The new company is hiring Genevieve McDonald, who is a Stonington lobsterman and member of the legislature, to be its liaison with maritime communities. That was Fred Bever from Maine Public Radio. After the break, a shark scientist dispels some myths about great whites in the Atlantic. Plus, a Massachusetts theater gets global attention as it pilots a play on Zoom with animation centered around the trial of a Russian teenager. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage including the John Merck Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate and clean energy. Okay, we're back. The buzz around great white sharks in New England keeps growing, especially after the tragic and fatal attack this summer in Maine. It's left us wondering how many sharks are in New England waters, and are they actually on the rise? Joining us to talk about it is John Chisholm, adjunct scientist at the New England Aquarium. John, thanks for coming on next. Uh, thanks for having me. I want to start off with the history of sharks in New England, because I think a lot of people believe that great white sharks have only recently arrived in the region, but that's not quite right, is it? Uh, yeah, we have had white sharks in New England for centuries. They predate Europeans landing on the continent. We know from Native American burial sites, they have white shark teeth associated with them, so... They've always been a part of the marine wildlife in New England. There was a period of time, though, right, like from the 70s to the 90s, where there was a rebound after there had been a drop in population when sharks and their food source or one of their food sources, seals, were hunted. Is that accurate? Um, that's pretty accurate. The seals were um, pretty much exterminated from New England until they were protected by the Marine Mammal Protection Act in 1972. And 
sharks do eat other items besides seals, but seals repopulating their old stomping grounds has definitely attracted the sharks to the areas where they haul out. So that's one of the reasons we're seeing more sharks because there are more seals. Okay, so just to clarify, it's accurate to say that even though sharks were here for centuries, it is true that, let's say, 30 years ago, there were fewer great white sharks in New England waters than there are today. There were fewer being seen. It doesn't necessarily mean there were fewer sharks. White sharks in particular, it was you know not too many people working on them in New England or looking for them, so... It's hard to go back and say how many there were, if that makes sense. That's kind of confusing. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it is confusing, but I think what I'm hearing from you, well, part of it is that you guys started doing intensive research in the 2000s. I think it was 2009. And so it's hard to say, like, okay, 20 years before that, how many were here because that intensive research wasn't being done. Exactly. So in terms of sightings, though, like Cape Cod has become a hot spot for great whites. But people are seeing more sharks, great whites, maybe other species, too, in New Hampshire and Maine. So so what's going on there? Are there actually more great whites traveling north? Does it have anything to do with warming water temperatures or is that completely wrong? That is one of the things that I've seen a lot of people comment that it's due to the warming water. But Our research and our historical sightings database show that that is just is not true. I think part of the thing that's adding to the phenomenon of more sightings is that pretty much everybody is walking around with a a cell phone. So it's really kind of an artifact of the technology that's improving and the fact that there's more people on the water and more people aware and paying attention and looking for these things. Yeah, that's a really interesting point. Um, I grew up in coastal Maine. You know, I would swim in the ocean all the time, and we were never talking about the risk of getting attacked by a shark. And I will say now, like, I think about it more when I'm swimming in the ocean, and sometimes I feel a little bit afraid. But so even if sharks have been around... That's not a really a rational fear, is it? Because the chances are so, so, so low. Right. The, the chances are incredibly low. And, you know, we, we've had a couple fatalities in the past, one off Cape Cod in 2018 and the recent one off of Maine. Um, and, and I think that hits a primal nerve in our human nature, you know, that there's something out there that we really can't control the situation and if you look at how many people are swimming in the ocean every day and the sharks are there, but the sharks are not interested in people, but still in a way, it's a good thing to have in your mind because you're going into the wilderness. When you go to the beach, you wouldn't go into the Amazon in a pair of flip-flops and a bikini or shorts, but you'll gladly go into the ocean and it's just as wild. Yeah, so when we go into the ocean, we're kind of co-inhabiting or sharing the ocean with great whites. So do we just accept that? I mean, I know that the solution has been thrown out that there could be culling, which is killing a certain number of sharks to control the population. But would that be the right call? No, for a few reasons. One, we know white sharks 
like other sharks, are apex predators, and and they help establish a balance in the marine ecosystem. The other thing is we don't know how many sharks there are. So we can't just, you know, say, well, if we take 10% or take 5%, you know, going out and killing a few white sharks isn't necessarily going to do anything for controlling the population. Now, you've dedicated a lot of your time and energy to researching sharks. So I just kind of want to know how you feel about them. Like, do you like sharks? Do you love them? (laughs) Uh, I'd like to say I was born a shark biologist. I knew before I was even in elementary school that I was going to be a shark biologist. Really, growing up, I never thought I'd actually still be living in New England working with sharks because when I was a kid, all the sharks that you heard about or read about in National Geographic were always somewhere else, Australia, South Africa, the Pacific. And now here I am right in my own backyard dealing with, you know, some of the greatest species on the planet. Well, we'll leave it there. John Chisholm is an adjunct scientist at the New England Aquarium. John, thank you so much for joining us. Okay, thanks for having me. Our last story today is about a play by the Arlequin Players Theatre in Needham, Massachusetts, that's getting global attention. They've pioneered an experimental combination of Zoom and animation to present an interactive play called State vs. Natasha Benina. WBUR's Krista Laguerra has more. From the moment you begin the online show, you're staring at Natasha. She's a teen inside what looks to be a cell, a bare place where she draws on the walls and rambles at times. Then, the 16-year-old girl on the screen starts saying your name. She can see you in the audience. Magdalena. (laughs) Karen. Alan. Jacqueline. (laughs) Nancy Smith. In this play, the fourth wall is gone, and you play a pivotal role from home. You're a part of the jury. See, Natasha's an orphan on trial for manslaughter, and she has a story to tell you. She's eager to explain. And at the end of her entrancing monologue, it's up to you. Is she innocent, or is she guilty? This one-woman show, which is presented alternately in English and Russian, was meant to be performed on stage this summer. Instead, actress Daria Denisova is playing the role in a living room, directed by her partner and director, Igor Goliak. We have the list of people who are coming to see the show on Zoom every night. And I study the list uh, before the show starts. People, people keep joining Zoom and many of them uh, keep the video on. And uh, before they see me, I see their faces. I see their eyes. As a love-struck, traumatized teen, her character Natasha is yearning for approval, yearning for love. She weaves a story about an older man, a journalist. She fell for him after he wrote an article about how she jumped out of a third-floor window on a dare. Her tale makes you question her account. Is this a crush or an obsession? Her imagination is vivid. 
Goliak used computer programs that integrate animation into Zoom, making a random astronaut appear and drawing spring to life. There's hearts that are draining from a faucet that Daria just drew on the wall, and suddenly hearts start coming out uh, and jumping around when she falls in love. So things like that, uh, when, when I figured out that it's possible, we started putting together something, uh, something incredibly, I think, interesting and artistic. The show is intimate. Lighting complements Natasha's heightening emotions. Her face gets closer to the screen when she's excited or when she pleads with the jury to understand her alleged crime of passion. Denisova says she feels she's grown closer to her character after this experimental performance. She played Natasha on stage five years ago. It's like, you know, when two people overcome lots of obstacles and go through difficulties together, I think this is my relationship with Natasha right now. It was very challenging when we made a decision to to have this virtual show because it's a one-woman show. And how are you going to make people want to watch you for almost one hour? Goliak says audiences are often left stunned after the performance when the living room set is revealed on Zoom. They had spent an hour inside Natasha's mind, scrutinizing her choices. You can catch State versus Natasha Benina online this fall. Check the Arlequin Players website for tickets. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Cristela Guerra. And that's our show this week. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts. Just search Next New England. And we're still soliciting your thoughts on the show. We'd like to know what you enjoy and what you think we could do differently. We hope you'll take our brief listener survey. Just go to nextnewengland.org for the link. Next is produced by me, Morgan Springer. Vanessa De La Torre is our executive editor. The executive producer is Katie Talarski. The music you hear on Next is by musicians in New England. If you want to know who you heard today, visit our show page at nextnewengland.org. The New England News Collaborative is powered by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, Connecticut Public Radio, Vermont Public Radio, New Hampshire Public Radio, Maine Public Radio, New England Public Media, WBUR, WCAI, WGBH, WSHU, and the Public's Radio.